This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, and this episode is Get to Zero Transformation. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. On July 6, 2020, Regina Mayer, KPMG Global and U.S. Head of Energy, connected with Mary Kipp, Oxford University graduate, lawyer, former CEO of El Paso Electric, and current Chief Executive Officer and President of Puget Sound Energy. Seattle was one of the first areas in the U.S. to experience COVID-19. Ms. Kipp had been CEO for all of two months when the virus reached her region. Her leadership in response to the outbreak became a model for others in the industry. Thank you for joining me, Mary. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, let's start off by if you could tell us a little bit about your company, Puget Sound Energy, your service territory, customers, team members. I know our listeners would benefit from hearing more about who you represent. Absolutely, Regina, and thanks for letting me be here. You're one of my favorite people to talk to, so this is a really fun opportunity oh, for me. you get me every time <laughs> with that. <laughs> well, so so um, PSC is a really old Washington company, and we're really um, tied to the history and the social fabric of the state. We actually go back to 1873, if you can believe it. And putting that in context, if you think about that Thomas Edison actually invented the first long-lasting incandescent bulb in 1879, it, it really lets you know how old we are. Today, we serve about 1.2 million electric customers. We're vertically integrated on the electric side, and we serve about 800 100,000 um, gas customers, mostly here on the western side of Washington State. So six years before the light bulb was even invented, a predecessor company of yours started providing service. That's amazing. Isn't, isn't that amazing? And, and actually, we're not alone in that. There are a number of utilities across the country that have that really rich history where we converted from essentially, you know, providing gas lights into uh, providing electricity. And, and that is something that has always fascinated me about this business is just how old we are and how much um, we have evolved and are continuing um, to evolve today. That and also the fact that we play such a critical role in so many people's lives, um, and that's become even more apparent recently, I'm sure, as you know. So given that you are a, a part of the fabric of the community, as you've mentioned, and you're headquartered in Bellevue, Washington, near Seattle, but near where the first outbreak, or at least one of the early outbreaks of the COVID-19 pandemic happened. You've had a bird's eye view to watch it unfold across the country. Tell us how you and your team have responded and what you've learned so far. Yeah, we've we've decided um, a couple of things. One is that we decided at the very beginning of the pandemic, we were going to make sure that our values as a company informed every decision that we made and that we would couple those values with science and data. And so, for example, our values are everyone has a voice, we have each other's back, and we do what's right. Then when you take into account, we have, for example, like uh, University of Washington here, which has been on the forefront of, you know, examining the outcome of uh, kind of COVID testing and those types of things. We've really stayed close to them as well in making our decisions. So if we go back to early March, which now seems so long ago, um, 
Puget Sound Energy has for a long time been part of a group called Challenge Seattle. And it's led by a former uh, Washington governor, Chris Gregoire. She's wonderful. And it's comprised of about 20 uh, companies that are integral um, to the economy of the region here. We're actually one of the smaller companies. Some of the bigger ones are companies like Starbucks and Microsoft. And the reason I mentioned those two in particular is that we were on calls where they would provide us the benefits of their experiences in China and in Italy. So we felt like we kind of had a postcard from the future that showed us was what was coming uh, down the pike for us. So um, very, very early on, we were um, on calls with Challenge Seattle and the King County Executive, Dow Constantine, was also involved. Folks from the mayor's office, from Jenny Durkin's office were also involved, and then, of course, the governor's office. And hearing from the companies and based on their prior experience, we all quickly knew that we needed to do what we could very, very quickly um, to stop the spread. So on March 5th, and by the way, I became CEO on January 2nd, so I hadn't been in the chair very long, but on March 5th, our management team made the decision that we were going to have all of our employees who could work from home start working from home. Now, obviously, we have a large number of field employees on both the gas and electric side, generation employees and some others who can't work from home, but we decided for our knowledge workers or our office workers, if you will, that we were going to send them home. And that's what we've done, and we have been working from home since then. I've actually been into my office proper one day uh, during this time, which is is really, really phenomenal. If you'd asked me if I would ever be doing that or, or all of my fellow employees would be doing that, I, I think we would have said never. It was kind of funny, too, right out of the box, me being a, a new CEO for the company. I've I've learned in retrospect some of the people we're questioning my judgment on when we when we announced on March right. 5th that we were having, you know, so many people work from home because it was unprecedented, which is the word of 2020 as we know. But um, now I've received so many thanks from employees for us living our values, you know, keeping each other safe, keeping our communities safe, trying to avoid having, you know, hospitals with, with too many patients and not enough beds. And um, so living our values and then looking at science and data and learning from others who've gone through a similar experience has really paid off for us. And this is the last thing I'll, I'll say on this point, and then I'll obviously let you talk some, but um, utilities across the country really looked to us because we were the first, and I think our model was really helpful to them um, in helping to mitigate some of the damage that they um, experienced as well, and we feel really grateful to have been able to provide some leadership on that. Not great, you know, to be on the front line, but really grateful to be able to share our learnings with them and hopefully do some good in the broader country. One of the hallmarks of this industry is the sharing and the mutual assistance. So it's terrific that you are able to provide that forward-looking perspective. Because March 5th, I mean, we still had our Houston rodeo going. And <laughs> oh frankly, gosh. I was at the rodeo on March 4th. So it all still seemed really distant. And it wasn't maybe till 10 days later that sort of the rest of the country started really catching up. You were definitely on the forefront. Uh, do you think there are permanent changes like when and if do you see yourself going back to the office what what does things look like in 2021 for example so that is the big question and the answer is i don't know yet we have a lot of analysis going on i'm always trying to find the positive um 
in, in kind of the terrible things that happen. And one of the positives that's come out of this is a couple of years ago, we were talking about having greater flexibility for our workforce. And more recently, when I became president and CEO, one of my initiatives was carbon reduction in terms of travel and commute time. And what we were coming up against, as, as so many companies do, is a culture that had some fear around allowing employees um, to work more remotely. And, you know, that varies from manager to manager, supervisor to supervisor. But because we were forced so quickly to move into um, this working remotely and having Zoom and Skype meetings and WebEx meetings, it showed us that we could do this. And we could do it productively and we could do it uh in a way that continued to provide the level of service to our customers that we want. So one of the things that we've done in terms of, you know, looking at timing uh, of going back is we're doing it in the same way that, that I talked to you about our decision to leave, and that's living our values and then um, looking at what the data is showing and let science guide us. So we had originally given a couple of months ago a date of September 1 to have people start turning the dial to go back to the workforce, to the workplace, because obviously it's not going to be everyone, you know, jumps back at once, but that was going to be our turning the dial date. And part of the reason that um, we decided on that date is so many parents were really worried about how they were going to care for their children over the course of the summer. You know, there were not childcare options, there were not summer camps. And so having been a single parent for much of, of my career as a parent, I knew that that would help um, assuage concerns of employees, both moms and dads, in terms of knowing that they would not have to worry about their children. And um, I think that's been a real positive. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback. I think people work harder when uh, they know that you have their best interest at heart. And the data in this case has certainly um, shown that that's played out. What we're talking about now, though, is September 1 is looking like it may be a little early. And yeah, some of, yeah, yeah. And so some of the companies, you know, that we, we partner with and, and look to for guidance are talking about October start dates or year end start dates. So our team that's looking about when and how we go back is currently um, in the process of making a decision on that. Certainly it's not going to be September 1. Um, but I can't tell you the exact date. And then the other part of your question in terms of do we go back, you know, once again, we're, we're looking at data on that, and it's been really, really interesting. One of the things that we've done is an employee survey of how comfortable people are working from home, whether they like it, whether they don't like it, whether it's a mix. So we have about half of our workforce that really, really likes working from home. It's a little bit less full-time. And then we have um, another smaller segment that maybe 20% that really wants to get back to the office. And then that leaves us, you know, with about 30 or 40% additional that say, you know what, we love the idea of working from home, but we also want to be able to go to the office from time to time. And so it's been it's really been really interesting uh, to reflect on this for a couple of reasons. One, it really has made me and I think many of my team realize that there's a certain amount of 
genius or good ideas that just come out of those incidental interactions that are much harder to have remotely. So we're working on ways to replicate that. But I think we do need to have uh, you know, space where we go back to the office and so people can have those types of interactions. So that's kind of one point. The other point that's really come up is an equity point. So some of our employees simply do not have situations that are conducive to them working at home, whether it's because they live in a studio or they live in a one-bedroom or two-bedroom with kids and it's just difficult. Um, so we're trying to find ways to accommodate um, a variety of situations to enable our employees to be happy, productive, and to serve our customers well. So there's there's a ton of other issues associated with this, but um, the equity issue isn't something that I, I anticipated in advance. So if you were to ask me, is there anything that surprised you? And it is how much this whole um, COVID situation has uh, driven equity concerns to the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely. I have I have felt that that the, the people that are completely single in this environment, like don't live with any loved ones, and then those parents with small children have had it particularly tough. So, uh, and equity is an important topic. So let me pivot to that. In in Bellevue, close to Seattle, you've also been at the forefront of some of the social inequity, racial injustice that we've seen of late with the Black Lives Matter discussions. I read your letter to the employees, and I was and I was touched and inspired by it. I would encourage all of our listeners to go to the PSE website and, and read Mary's letter to the employees. But what one of the things that you said was your first act is to simply listen. So what have you heard, and what actions might you take? So this is... This has been probably one of the most, if not the most powerful experience of my entire career. Um, as you said, you know, here in Seattle, and I live in Seattle, um, it, we have a long history of protesting and demonstration and speaking up, which is one of the, quite honestly, wonderful things about the Pacific Northwest. And I live about um, a mile and a half from the um, the chop zone, as it was called, before it was dismantled. And I've been hearing a lot of fireworks every night, not necessarily associated with the 4th of July, but some of it's been associated um, with, with protests. And it's been, it's been really powerful to me um, to live during this time where so many events have coalesced to make people say we've had enough and we want to make a meaningful difference in terms of racial justice and equity. So it's been really, really amazing. Um, in terms of my letter to employees, thank you so much um, for complimenting it. Truly, it was one of those things that I just felt I needed to write and I needed to make sure that I expressed myself both as an individual human being and then also as a CEO, which isn't necessarily um, the same role. I made a choice to um, refer to uh, the death of George Floyd as a murder, which I know not everyone listening to this podcast will agree with. It obviously has not um, been determined by a jury or court of law to be that yet, but I wanted people to know that that's how I, I felt it resonated with me and with many others. In talking to my colleagues, I've seen kind of a few different points come out. And I'm, I'm not only talking about listening to um, our friends and colleagues of color 
but all of our friends and colleagues. And some people really have said that they did not realize the degree of disparity in uh, opportunities and outcomes until recent events. Like people would be somewhat aware, but it had never been driven home to them just how different the two realities are for traditionally marginalized peoples and people who have been traditionally advantaged. So that's been pretty powerful too. From some of my um, colleagues of color, I've learned a lot too. I've learned um, don't force people to speak. Let them speak if they want to, right? It's been a lot of pressure on some folks just because now they feel like almost their very existence is a political statement, which no one wants. Um, and then at the same time, I've had people reach out to me among the employee base who have really talked about this is the first time they feel like they can start bringing their whole selves to work. Um, and it's not just people of color. It's also members of the LGBTQ plus community um, and a variety of others. But having the dialogue is messy. It's hard. We did an all-employee webcast where I had all of the senior officer team on, and I opened with, I am speaking about this the best way I can. I can't tell you that the way I'm saying it isn't going to come across wrong. It's not going to come across messy. But I want you to know where I stand on it. And I'm very open to constructive criticism on any of this. Because if we don't have honest dialogues, we don't make progress. And so that's been incredibly well received. I have had a few folks who are not comfortable with either the letter I sent or um, the viewpoint that I'm taking. But that's part of this process. And one of our values, as I said, is everybody has a voice. So I want everybody to use their voice, um, provided it doesn't create hardship or discrimination or an uncomfortable work environment for others. So it has been a wonderful um, lesson. We're just at the beginning of it. You know, a lot of companies have taken some pretty strong actions following this. We are being um, conservative on this for a couple of reasons. One, when I when I became CEO, I had two key initiatives that I wanted to work on, and that the first one is deep decarbonization, and we can talk about that in a bit. But the second one, too, was really meaningfully have diversity, equity, and inclusion, and create a structure and programs around it. PSE has done wonderful work um, in the past, but I wanted to take it even further. We've done a ton of work on gender equity, and I want to make sure that we um, extend that further. But we don't want to just announce something that isn't fully thought out and that we're not going to execute on, because we have one chance to get this right, and I don't want to let people down. So stay tuned on that as well. Okay. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that. And clearly, Mary, you've had the trial by fire taking on the CEO role January 2nd and dealing with these these situations one after the other. But I, I did see, I could read the letter, and it was clearly in your voice, and it was very human. And having read a number of these letters, because I think every CEO in the Fortune 1000 and, and beyond has written some form of a letter, it definitely stood out. Uh, let's let's pivot and talk more about digital because you mentioned right your ability to start working from home on March 5th was critical and how you even deal with your customers so what did you learn about how you effectively engaged externally with customers virtually and I also would say you've got to get to zero set of investments on the digital front and those companies that already had significant investments in digital were clearly ahead so tell us how digital made an impact for you at PSE during COVID. 
So digital was hugely positive from both an employee and a customer perspective. And you mentioned the, the Get to Zero program or G to Z as we call it. Everyone has to have acronyms, I guess, in this oh, industry. I didn't the TLA. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and I can claim no credit for the Get to Zero investments that we made, but they are phenomenal. And what they've done during this time is they've really let us respond to our customer needs and I think they're a great example of how we've um, you know really tried to proactively think about how to help our customers. One example I'll give you that um, has, has come to fruition during this time that wouldn't have been possible without Get to Zero is um, we were able to very quickly develop and implement um, an assistant program for our customers. And we used our digital investments to um, complete a low-income assistance portal and um, help help customers also who were suffering as a result of COVID-19, whether it was job losses or otherwise. And what that allowed us to do is we were able to um, bring $11 million um, to play for our customers to assist them with bills. And as of today, I think we're at about 9,000 customers who have um, received the benefit of this assistance. And we've um, had customers... Um, except about $5 million of, the, of assistance so far. So we still have money in the pot, and um, we know that our customers are definitely going to need that. But I think this is an example of leveraging a technology platform in place um, to help roll out successfully and make available very quickly a new program. And then, obviously, in terms of um, our ability to work from home, it was really seamless for us, and I hesitate to even say that, you know, because I'm, I don't want to invite disaster. But, um, you know, we just, being in a technology hub, obviously we have access to really terrific technology talent, and we have a, a great CIO. And so, I mean, it was basically without a blip. I mean, it's, it's really worked well, and for the most part, people have been really happy with it. That's great. That's great. So a tangible example of how the technology enabled you to get either money or assistance or forgiveness into the hands of those who needed it most via technology. Exactly. So one, you also talked about deep decarbonization as one of your platforms. And before, you know, at the beginning of 2020, we were talking about the fires in Australia and we had Davos at the World Economic Forum and climate change was a hot topic. You know, tell, tell me your thoughts on the energy transition itself, and does it still have a prominent role in the, in the go-forward plan, or is it going to take more of a back burner given all the other things we've been talking about? So this has been something really interesting to watch unfold, especially up here in the Pacific Northwest. But I, I mean, you know me, Regina. I've always said that I think climate change is an existential threat. And the yeah. addition of yeah. another existential threat doesn't negate the first one. But what's been amazing to me is a couple of things. The first one is the way that I mentioned the governmental entities at various levels, the business community, um, nonprofits have come together to talk about COVID and to deal with it. And that Challenge Seattle group that I mentioned previously that has about 20 members, actually during this time we opened our doors to everyone to participate in our weekly calls. 
And at the height of, of, of people listening in, it was, you know, hundreds of people. So that was really helpful. But what, what was so interesting to me there is we, we said, okay, we have this terrible, terrible thing facing us. It's going to take all of us working together to solve it. So you and I may be competitors or you and I, governmental entity and, and, and private company may have different views on some things. We may have, you know, rubbed up against each other in the past and, and, and upset each other. But this thing is too important for that. So you saw all of these different interests coming together with a single mind of helping stop this virus and mitigating the impact of this virus. So to me, this was really an unprecedented public-private partnership and people really putting aside kind of individual interests for the collective good. Right. Right. I've always been a huge advocate of getting everybody in the same room to talk about things. I, I, I firmly believe that we should listen more to people who disagree with us than people who agree with us. And it's really important that we do it in a respectful way and be open to having our minds changed. And today, more than ever, I think we need some of that. So what I'm hoping is we actually saw that during the pandemic response, and we'll continue to see that. And I'm hoping that that extends to how we look at climate change. You know, historically, mm -hmm. there are entities that are very distrustful of utilities, even though, in my view, we've done a phenomenal job in terms of decarbonization. A lot of work to do, but we've, we've done a phenomenal job. But if we can have some trust, maybe trust but verify, and really work together, I think it's our best bet of um, achieving this this huge, huge goal of um, stopping and reversing climate change. And then related to that also, we talked a little bit about the Black Lives Matter movement, some of the social equity movements that we have going. What I've seen recently that's been really interesting to me and I think is really hopeful is members of the environmental community and the social justice communities coming together and seeing the interplay between climate change and social justice. So I know at PSE, as we're looking at, you know, complying with Washington State's Clean Energy Transformation Act, a big component of that and under the legislation is equity. And so I think we're going to find some really interesting ways um, to bring that forward and to um, bring benefits to maybe communities that were traditionally marginalized and, and weren't allowed to share um, in some of the benefits of green energy. So you and I are of the same vintage that we know what trust but verify means and where it comes from. So. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, okay. So, but you publicly stated you have objectives to be coal-free by 2025 and carbon neutral by 2030. How are you? How are you doing against those targets? We. Um, are making a ton of progress. And a lot of that progress obviously um, precedes me. But we actually will be coal-free by uh, 2025. We are currently in the process of um, exiting the coal strip plant in Montana. We also have a PPA for the Centralia plant um, in Washington State, which we actually took on as part of the effort to exit uh, the state from coal. But we will be out of both of those by 2025. And then in terms of, you know, getting to carbon neutral and then uh, to 100% renewable by 2045, carbon neutral is 2030, as you said, um, we've got a lot of exciting projects going on. Um, we're doing RFPs, you know, for every type of renewable you can imagine. Um, we are looking at renewable natural gas. We're even um, part of a consortium looking at hydrogen. Um, it's really all of the above. We're looking at utility scale as well as DER. 
energy efficiency is always um, part of the ethos up here in the Pacific Northwest, and so we're doing some of that. Uh, but we have we have an entire group, you know, dedicated to how do we get to CETA in the most cost-effective way for our customers. And quite frankly, uh, CETA is one of the main reasons that I came up here because I believe if we can successfully execute this in Washington State, it can be a really good model for how to do it other places. And you mentioned uh, eliminating or reducing the commute as being a, a big part of your your own ability to achieve carbon neutrality. And I did see that you've got the, you're part of the West Coast Clean Corridor Initiative about electrifying I-5. Tell us more about how electric vehicles fit into the strategy and what PSC is doing to support that. Yeah, so PSC, um, here in Washington State, we have a goal. I think it's a million electric vehicles by 2030. I'm not 100% on that number, but we have some pretty lofty goals towards um, electrification of vehicles. We also have a lot of customers up here who want to have electric vans, electric trucks, things like that for delivery purposes. So we really are kind of at the epicenter of the electric vehicle movement. And to that end, we've had, I think, 10 pilot programs um, trying them out in different ways, both for individual vehicles, commercial vehicles, single-family residences, multi-family residences, public-private charging. We're really trying to figure out kind of where the sweet spot is to help people electrify in a cost-effective way. And also we've um, had some programs that are really about education around electric vehicles. So that's been really, really exciting um, for us as well. As far as the West Coast Clean Corridor Initiative, um, we were one of the founding partners along with SoCal Edison or Southern California Edison. And um, we really believe that utilities are uniquely positioned um, to help create this infrastructure. Um, and we're, you know, very interested in, in doing that and helping our customers convert their fleets. Nine West Coast utilities got together, including Seattle City Light. I always have to, to mention them. Um, they, it took us a, a year to conduct the study. And as you know, the results were just announced. And basically, the study is advocating for installing higher voltage charging at 50, uh, mile intervals along I-5 from Canada to Mexico and then across various other connecting highways including I-90 which is here in Washington State and these 50 mile intervals would support um, medium duty truck charging and then every other station would later be upgraded to support charging for heavy duty trucks and there are so many benefits to this as you know um, air pollution reduction greenhouse gas reduction um, especially going back to our equity discussion of a few minutes ago, you know, so many highly impacted communities can be communities of color or lower income communities um, along these big corridors. And so we want to do what we can to help there. And um, but to me, what's really exciting about this is driving the adoption of electrified trucks. That's that's really going to be huge, huge and exciting. And we're going to do it in a phased fashion. And every utility is going to participate in its service territory. So this is another one to stay tuned on. Um, we plan to discuss kind of the coordination of all of this very soon. That's exciting. I mean, every 50 miles to be able to have charging at the truck level, that's a game changer. Yeah, it really is. So I would be remiss 
sitting here in Houston, Texas, if I didn't talk about the future of fossil fuels and how we can decarbonize some of the hydrocarbons. And I did see that PSC is part of the Tacoma LNG, which is a new LNG plant slated to open in 2021. How does LNG fit into the big decarbonization objectives and everything you just laid out? So I think um, LNG is actually going to be hugely helpful in a couple of ways. One is, uh, the fact is, at least for the current time, we need natural gas. There's no way that we can quickly enough build um, all the renewables that we're talking about overnight. And so we need natural gas until then. And given that we're dependent on one pipeline coming from Canada here uh, in the Pacific Northwest, we thought it was really important to be able to store natural gas here. And so the LNG facility is going to be kind of a backup for our customers in that regard. Even more importantly, though, and this was not what I'm about to say was not the original impetus for the project. But if we look at kind of in terms of cleaning up the world and our planet, um, maritime fuels, especially high, high sulfur diesel, are notoriously polluting. And what the LNG facility is also going to do is allow maritime traffic to comply with the UN Maritime Commission uh, low fuel low um, sulfur fuel standards, excuse me, and by by, uh, beginning to power their ships with clean burning LNG. So we're very excited about that. And we see that that's going to really help clean up um, the routes between here and Alaska in particular. And we're very excited to be part of that transition. So so Mary, you've covered the gamut from uh, an all of the above strategy around decarbonizing sources of fuel, renewables, hydrogen, biogas, and then also the behavioral side with energy efficiency and electrifying the fleet and reducing the commute. Uh, and then now with uh, reducing the, the, the carbon element around maritime fuels, you're definitely practicing what you preach on your deep decarbonization, and I appreciate you walking us through that. Let, let's talk about you now, though, for a few minutes, Mary, because you're an impressive person. You've got this wonderful pedigree with degrees from Williams College and Oxford, and you have a law degree, and you were a practicing lawyer before becoming a CEO of two separate utilities. What has been your key to success? You know, that's a really um, interesting question, and it has so many facets and spot, so many right? layers. <laughs> So, so to answer it maybe in a more conventional way, and then I'll answer it in a less conventional way, um, you know, obviously I've worked hard, but I've also put myself in situations that weren't necessarily the most popular venue. You know, to go to the spaces that aren't as crowded, and I think sometimes that's incredibly helpful. Like I spent time at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in the Enforcement Office where I learned a ton. Um, and then I worked in El Paso, which is a place off the beaten path that, you know, maybe many people don't think about going to. And because I was there, I was given opportunities that maybe somewhere else I wouldn't have been. And so I feel really, really fortunate um, to have that. The less conventional answer, though, and this is one that is kind of a a call out to all of us to make sure that we're continuing to live equity, and that is, I was born with some advantages. You know, I'm a I'm a white woman in the United States. I was fortunate to have a good education, which gave me further opportunities for good education, and so. 
One of the things that kind of as side work that I've done over the years is really looking at equities behind education. And I, I really started working on this with a group in El Paso when I was there. And if we don't make sure that kids in grade school and particularly middle school have as close to a level playing field as we can get, we're going to have a group of folks who just don't have a chance. And so there will be people out of that group who make it out, but it's going to be infinitesimally small compared to the people who had advantages like I have. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to really fight for equity in education. I think this whole pandemic, once again, is another eye-opener on the inequities that exist, especially in terms of digital learning, but also maybe an opportunity for us to create, us as a society, to create um, more equal opportunities for everyone. But clearly, you know, just access to Internet alone, you know, not even taking into account a curriculum is making a huge um, difference in terms of where people live and what they have. So. I would say we all need to be not just thinking about our own success, but thinking about how do we lift everybody up. That's very, that's that's terrific words of wisdom. And you're right, the homeschooling piece definitely showed inequities. Um, multiple children having to share devices, or even have to do having to try to do their schoolwork on their parents' cell phone because that was the only electronic device available. No libraries, right? No public access. It, it definitely shone a spotlight. And anything I think we can do to level that playing field is absolutely critical. So I know these are tough times, but they won't last forever. So you've already been incredibly inspirational, Mary, but give us a, some final closing remarks that you would like to share with our listeners uh, about the future. Yeah, so one, I am just so thankful. I've had I've had people say, you know, if, if knowing what you know now – would you have taken this job and come to the Pacific Northwest? And I say absolutely. I feel like when we're given leadership roles and power during times like these, it's a huge opportunity to make a positive change. So shame on us if we don't at least try to make um, some big positive changes during this time. But one of the things that's helped my team and, and me get through this is while we've been in crisis mode quite a bit in terms of dealing with the pandemic and dealing with health issues and reliability issues and those types of things, we've never let go of looking at what we want to be in the future too. So all of the items that we've talked about today in terms of renewables, energy efficiency, all of those things, we've kept that work going during this time. And we've tried to look at how the learnings of this time can enhance it. So I would encourage everyone to keep planning for a better future that we can't see right now, um, but just to know it's there and know that um, the more work we, we do with an eye to that, the better it will be once we get there. Very true. So thank you, Mary, for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. It's always my privilege to be able to speak to you and connect, and I do hope that I get to see you in person sometime in the not-too-distant future, but thank you again. I hope so, too, and thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on Get to Zero Transformation. A transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.